All right, take your Bibles open to Romans chapter 8. For those of you who have been with us since we started our study in the book of Romans, you know personally that the Apostle Paul has spent a lot of time on issues that are surrounding the law of God. Matter of fact, uh, it was mentioned 61 times in the first seven chapters. Did you catch that? The law was mentioned 61 times in the first seven chapters. Just in chapter 7 itself, it was spoken of in 16 of the 25 verses. So if you think, man, Darren, you're talking a lot about the law, it's because it's in the scriptures. Okay? With Paul, or you know, the Jewish believers there in the church at Rome, Paul obviously felt that there was a strong need that certain issues needed to be settled with these Jewish believers. Um, as I said before, some of them, I'm sure, were simply confused. They were coming out of Judaism and coming into Christianity, and chances are there were some who were maybe just new in the faith, young in the faith, and did not quite understand everything. Okay? And so Paul, Paul suspected that they were mistaken on the fundamentals of the law. And of course, as you know, Paul was a Jew himself, and I'm sure this is something that he probably went through when he was first called by Christ on the road to Damascus. I'm sure there was a time when he didn't certainly grasp everything himself. Well, after stating clearly uh, that no one, especially the Jews, obviously, but no one ultimately is going to be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law, uh, Paul also stated to the believing Jews that they had been released from the law, and he told them that salvation was by grace, it was through faith, it was in Christ alone. Okay? He then began talking about the practicality of the law. And with the implied question of, well, you know, hey, Paul, if we're not saved by the law, then what's the purpose of it? Paul spent a real, I would say, a good amount of time sharing how the law was used by God to show the sinfulness of man. Folks, keep in mind, it is impossible, it is impossible to take our lives, if I use my hand here, it's impossible to take our lives and place it side by side with the law of God. It's impossible to do that and not recognize that we have not failed miserably. That's the point. That's the point of the law. Paul spent a majority of chapter 7 talking about this on a personal basis, right? How he himself, because of his own sin nature, struggled with sin. It is, look, it, it, for, those who study the, for those of us who study the Bible for a living, if you will, and we teach a lot, um, it's easy to see the faithfulness of the Apostle Paul. It is, it is wow. But yet, you know what? Paul, Paul opens his heart in chapter 7 and says, man, I, I struggle too. I have the sin nature, and it is a battle. It is a battle. And so he broke that open there in chapter 7. So with so much talk about the law and sin together, mentioning it 39 times just in chapters 6 and 7, okay, because we're coming out of that. He mentions that in chapter 6 and 7, 39 times. Paul moved forward into chapter 8, speaking on how we are not lost there. 
He talks about the law. He talks about the sin that it uncovers. But he says we're not lost there. Yes, he says we have failed God. We cannot keep the law perfectly. But he says we do have victory. And most importantly, we find mercy through Jesus Christ. And that's important. Look at how he began in chapter 8, verse 1. He said, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, folks, I think this, as I was going through this this week, I think this was a very important time for Paul to go here. And the reason I say that is because he had spent so much time on the subject of sin and how we, we fall short of God's perfect and holy law. I mean, even for the Christian, it can get you down when you hear over and over again that you have sinned, that you have failed God. And so to bring up the mercy of Christ and to share that there is no condemnation for us who have placed our faith in Christ. We have placed our faith in his sacrifice for us. I believe that was a definite need, especially after going through those last couple of chapters. It's important, folks, to be reminded that God is good. And I don't mean good how we talk about good. God is good. And God has accepted Jesus' death on our behalf as if we died that jesus took our sins and gave us his righteousness that 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 should always be mind-boggling folks he took our sin and gave us his righteousness we talked about that earlier i believe chapter six okay when we truly see and this is one of paul's points but when we truly see the depth of our own sin and depravity which paul's made crystal clear It makes what Christ did on our behalf even greater. It's not that we were just some decent people. We were, and are really, ultimately, at least practically, but we were filthy, horrible, sinful, not righteous, depraved human beings. And yet Christ loved us enough to die for us, to pay the price for that sin and show us the greatest mercy ever of giving us his righteousness and not not giving us hell, which is what we deserve. But Paul didn't stop there. He went into chapter 8, verse 2, to tell us why there is no condemnation. And he starts off with the word because. I mentioned this before. If you have the word for, it should be better translated because. Here's why. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And so Paul says, through Christ, right? It's important. It is through Christ alone, right? There's no other mediator between God and man than Jesus Christ. What does he say? Through him, we have been set free, set free from the law of sin and death, or if you want to phrase it, the law that sin causes death. Folks, this is, this is that controlling influence of sin that we've talked so much about in the previous chapters. This is that sin nature within every one of us that, that literally drives us to resist the holy standards of God. 
This is the sin that literally makes us deserving of the condemnation that was spoken of in verse 1. Okay? You know what that is? That is eternal death. Separation from God. Hell. That's what the Bible calls it. But praise God that as Paul says here, we have been set free. The believer in Jesus Christ has been set free from that life, listen, and that penalty. We've been set free from that life of sin. It doesn't have dominion over us, but also the penalty. Why or how? By the law of the spirit of life, he says once again, or if it's the spirit that gives life. I read last week, I'll read it again, in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. It says, He saved us not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, hence the term born again, right? He he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The New Living Translation says it very easy. He gave us new birth. He gave us new life. Two things, right? Personally and practically, he saved us, declared us righteous, gave us a new birth, we're born again, and he gave us a new life in Christ. I mean, 2 Corinthians 3, 6 says, he is the spirit that gives life. So it's very clear. Through the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, indwells every single believer. We'll see that in in chapter 8, verse 9, not too far from here. But through him, we can overcome that sin nature that Paul spoke so much about. As I mentioned last week in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says to walk, or if you will, to live by the Spirit. But guess what? He didn't just say do that, but he says when you do that, you will not, those are important words, you will not gratify the desires of the sin nature. Okay? That's important. And overall, folks, that will be the subject matter. What Paul will hone in on, if you will, as we move our way through chapter 8. So as we did last week, uh, let's read verses 1 through 4. And we'll pick up where we left last time, and that'll be in verse 3. Starting in verse 1, he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sin nature, but who live according to the spirit. So as Paul stated to back up just a hair So as Paul stated here in verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is uh, absolutely clear, 100% true, okay? But there is also something that statement is implying, 
okay? Coming off of chapters 6 and 7, that's also implying that there is condemnation for those under the law. There's no condemnation for those in Christ, but there is for those who live under the law. And this is, this is what Paul is doing here. For numerous verses, on and on, he has told us what the law does in our lives. Okay? Not only does living under the law not save anyone, but it's just the opposite. What does the law do? It condemns us. It condemns us. Therefore, in a natural progression, he shows us who does save us. Right? Despite the fact that we are sinners, despite the fact that we all fall short of God's glory, he mentions Jesus Christ in verse 1 as well as in verse 2 and shows us that he alone is the only way of salvation. The law, folks, has done exactly what it is supposed to do in showing us our sin. The law has done its job, okay? And Christ, through his mercy, has forgiven those very sins for those who have placed their faith in him. Not for those who walked an aisle, not for those who had an altar call, not for those who were baptized or prayed, asked Jesus into their heart. For those who humbled themselves, surrendered to Jesus Christ, recognizing what they cannot do for themselves, but what he did for them. I say this to prepare us for verse 3. Look at the first half of verse 3. He says, For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sin nature. Stop. Okay? I'll read it again. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sin nature. We'll stop. Now, folks, I've said this before, and I will say it again. The law could not and cannot save anyone. In the Old Testament or in the New Testament, the law is not salvific. The law has, if you will, no saving capabilities. None. For every single person, particularly the Jews, obviously, but for every single person who has ever lived under the law, guess what? They have broken it. And they've done so again and again and again. Living under the law as hard as you try will not bring you into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. It will not. And secondly, not only can the law not save you, as I've mentioned before, it cannot sanctify you. The word sanctify there simply means it is to separate yourself from that which is wicked and to dedicate yourself to God. To separate yourself from that which is wicked, to dedicate yourself to God. If you want to say it in the most simple form, it means to make holy. To make holy. The law in all of its righteousness and all of its goodness does not make us holy. It actually shows us that we're not. You grasp that, folks? It shows us that we're not. Okay? The law does not help us to overcome sin. It actually points a finger back at us and sadly just says, you failed again. 
And this is why Paul is saying what he's saying here in verse 3. The law was powerless to do something. Right? Because it was weakened by the sinful nature. The law was unable to save us or sanctify us, he says, because of the weakness of our sin nature. If you turn back one page, chapter 7, verse 5, speaking on being weakened by the sin nature, look what he says. He says, For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, so he's going back in time here, when we were controlled by the sinful nature, he says the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. Wow, that says a lot. Paul said the sinfulness within him, in other words, that sin nature for all of us, was literally aroused by the law. You grasp that? The law, the perfect law of God, which gave and showed his righteousness, aroused the sin nature. He says so that it literally caused him to sin, to go against that. Okay? Look, just go down a few verses to verse 8. It says something very similar. Chapter 7, verse 8. He says, but sin... Or you can say it's sin nature if you want. Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, listen to this, it produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Folks, what, what's happening here is Paul is talking that the commandment he mentioned is do not covet. He brought that up in the previous verse. That's what he's talking about. Okay, He says when he heard that commandment, which was do not covet, it came straight from the very law of God. What did it do? Paul said the sin within him now had a desire to covet. Go figure that. And of course, you know I've joked about that many times, right? I've always used the park bench. Walk around the park as far as you want. Nobody walks around touching the park benches as they go. But you put a sign on it that says, do not touch. Every one of us is going to say, I'm going to touch the bench. It's joking, but it's real. It's real within us. It's a rebellious sin nature. So folks, catch it. The law stirs up sin, as Paul has just got through saying. The law stirs up sin. Now, as we learned in chapter 7, verse 12, the law itself is holy. It's the word of God, right? The law itself is holy. It's righteous. It's good. What is the problem? The problem is that we are not. Our natural rebellious nature makes us want to do the very things that we learn are forbidden. Until we, we may never have wanted to do it, but once God's holiness came out, we say, now I want to do that. And this is not the fault of the law, but the very presence of truth that sometimes urges us to rebel. The passions of our sin nature seem to come alive. And by the way, that's something, now that we know that, we should try and catch that. <laughs> we should go, wait a minute. That's going to happen and it has happened to every one of us in this room. Now maybe we can go, hey, wait a second. I just cut myself. See? So the question is, 
What was the law powerless to do? Remember, that was the question. What was the law powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature? Well, let's read the second half of verse 3 and find out. He says, as it was weakened by the sinful nature, what? God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. What the law was powerless to do, God did. Okay? Now, as I just read from some of those verses in chapter 7, the law of God provokes sin within us. Okay? Uh, You might say our sin nature gets fired up. Maybe that's the way you want to phrase that. Okay? The law of God provokes sin within us. Here's the kicker. At the very same time, it condemns us of that very sin. It provokes the sin within us, and then it condemns us for sinning. Okay? But, but, very important. And here's the answer to the question. It cannot save us from the penalty of that sin. Oh, yeah, the law does its job. Right? It provokes that sin because we have a sin nature. It provokes that sin. It condemns us for sinning, but it can't save us from its penalty. That's the answer to that question in verse 3. God's holy law expressed the standards of his righteousness. Do you, do you understand that? The very holy law of God, what does it do? It expresses the standards of his righteousness, or as we talked about in this morning in a Bible study, it's his, it shows his very nature, his moral, perfect, and holy nature. Okay, But in doing so, it also shows how helpless we are in fulfilling that. Right, This very law showing the moral perfection of God, his holy standards, also tells us that we can't do that. But guess what? That's it. That's it. The law tells us that we have failed. The law tells us that we cannot live up to those standards. The problem we therefore have is that we're left in our sin with no way out. The law can only do so much, folks. It did its job. But the problem is what it can't do. It leaves us there, wallowing in our sin. And not only do we have the punishment for that sin, but now we have no way to overcome it. And therefore, what happens? Verse 3 again. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful men. He didn't send Christ as sinful man, right? He sent him in the likeness of sinful man to do what? To be a sin offering. Folks, that is, for those of you who know Philippians 2, that is Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. The Son left the glory of the Father. He came in human likeness. Why? To die on a cross. That is it in a brief statement. He was offering for our sin. Jesus was the offering for our sin. He paid the sin offering. That was himself. Why? Because the law couldn't do it. He just said so. The law couldn't do it. 
Matter of fact, Paul even tells us this. In Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. Here's a section of scripture. Paul and his companions were in uh, Pisidian Antioch. And uh, as they do on occasion, if not all the time, they go into the synagogues. Okay? And while they were there, in case you didn't know, they, they, they will first read from the law, which they did. And then the leaders of the synagogue asked the question, is there anybody here who would like to speak? And of course, Paul goes, oh, oh pick me, pick me, right? That's what Paul does. And so here's what he says. Paul says in the synagogue, he says, my brothers, meaning the Jewish people, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now listen to this. He says, through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified by the law of Moses. <laughs> I mean, he just, he just gave that part of my sermon for me. Jesus Christ is going to justify you from what you can't be justified with by the law of Moses. Simple as that. The law has a job to do. But it can't save you, it can't sanctify you, it can't change you, it can't transform you. He basically says the law couldn't do it, but Jesus can. That's what he said. Literally, folks, he bore the fury of God's wrath for our sin. A great verse 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin. Right? We talked about it this morning. God has never sinned. He can't sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Same thing, Hebrews 9.28. Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins of many people. Paul then finishes verse 3 by saying, and so he condemned sin in sinful man. Previously, because of our sin, the law condemned us, right? Well, because he took our penalty on the cross, Christ condemned the sin. The law condemned us, Christ has now condemned the sin. What does that mean? It means that he did not only just pay for the sin so that we don't have to, right? He took it upon himself, right? That's verse 1, right? What does verse 1 say? There is no condemnation for those in Christ, right? But he also put an end to sin's control over us. Doesn't mean you never sin, but he put an end to sin's control over us. And we know this, by the way, as we go into verse 4, which, by the way, is simply a continuation of verse 3. So much so, it's actually the same sentence. It's still the very same sentence. Look at verse 4. The end of verse 3 says, And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sin nature but according to the Spirit. So Jesus condemned sin in sinful man. Yes, 
to pay for our sin, to do what the law could not do, but to also free us from sin's reign in our life. Thayer's Greek defines it as it was deposed of its dominion. Sin was deposed of its dominion. In other words, folks, part one is justification, right? Part two, which we're seeing now, is sanctification. Our goal now, our purpose now, is to live such a life, as Paul says here, so that the requirements of the law are fully met in us. Folks, this is, this is kind of like Peter quoting Leviticus. Be holy because he is holy. Okay? We are to live our lives, he's saying, in such a fashion that the law is now fulfilled in us. And no, folks, I don't mean sitting here, uh, you know, marking off each command. Okay, I think I can do that one really good. Okay, I'm, I'm okay at this one. I'll mark that off. Okay, it's, it, this is not what we're talking about. You know, looking at each individual command and marking off and what I'm good. I think it's focusing more on what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22. And I know we all know it very well. Verses 37 through 40. Jesus was asked the question, right? What is the greatest commandment? They're, they're trying to trick Jesus. But what does he say? He said to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We love ourselves. We do. We love ourselves. We take care of ourselves. We pamper ourselves. We love ourselves. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then listen, all of the law and the prophets hang, he says, on these two commandments. All of the law hangs on these two commandments. Do you guys understand how that is? Because all of the commandments deal with really two entities, right? God and man. That's it. There is nobody else. There's God and man. Even looking at the, uh, the Ten Commandments, right? All the Ten Commandments are based on God and man. Don't, I'll use this word, don't offend God, don't offend man. Don't sin against God, don't sin against man. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. That'd be horrible. That's against God. Don't steal from your brother. That's your brother. He's a neighbor. Everything revolves around God and man. And so he says the bottom line is you want to fulfill the law, then love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you do that, you won't sin against God. That's the whole point. And then love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, right, you won't sin against your neighbor. You won't do those things that affect man. That's what he's talking about. See, we can do this, Paul says, because the Christian, what does he say, does not live according to the sin nature. But we live according to the Spirit, he says. And verse 4. Now that word walk, that word live, it depends on what translation you have. It's the Greek word peripateo, and it literally means to conduct yourself. If you want to do it in a simple way, it means to behave. Okay? Conduct yourself, behave. And also, and this is very important, it is in the present tense in the Greek, and that simply means it is habitual. He's not saying, hey, I want you to have a good Monday tomorrow. 
He's saying, I want you to have a good life. Okay, in other words, he's saying, being it's habitual, he's saying this is a life style. It's habitual. It doesn't stop. It's ongoing. Conduct yourselves from here on out for the rest of your life in this fashion. I'm not giving you time off. There's no break. And I hope you want to. You don't want a time off. You don't need a break because you want to honor God. You want to live for him, right? That's why he says live in this fashion on a constant basis. We perpetually, we continually do not live a lifestyle of sin. We, we do not follow the ways of the world, but we do live a life that honors God. That's basically that in a nutshell. And that's because, Paul says, our daily conduct comes through the controlling power of the Holy Spirit. This is, listen to me, folks, this is the only way that will happen. There's a reason why be filled with the Spirit is a command. Because that's what being filled is. It's to be under the daily control of the Holy Spirit. That's a command. Being indwelt isn't a command. Right? Being sealed isn't a command. Being baptized isn't a command. Everything in the Spirit, those are commands, but that's a command. Because that is how we are empowered to live that life that he asks us to live. Once again, as you heard me say before, God doesn't save us and say the best of luck to you. Good luck, hope you make it. He doesn't do that. He loves us more than that because he knows we'd fail. Every one of us here would fail and we'd fall hard. But he gave us his Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 4. Calvinists love this verse. It's a good verse. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. It's true. It says so. I mean, you can't deny it. It's the way it is. The problem is they forget about the second part. Okay? He chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. It's easy to focus on that, the doctrinal part of what God did before the foundation of the world where he chose us. Okay? It was his choice, not ours. But we lose the fact that we continue in the verse, but he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. He didn't just choose us and go, woo, we're saved right on, let's just continue on. No. He said, now that I've chosen you, there's a reason. Here's how I want you to live from here on out. And, and I'll empower you to do it. I'll empower you to do it. God knows that we couldn't even begin to do this if it wasn't for two things. His spirit and his word. Period. We couldn't do it. But here's the great news, folks. God has given us both. He's given us both. Well, folks, this is just the beginning of how Paul will speak on the Spirit of God in our lives. Just the beginning. Chapter, or verse 9, I'm sorry. In verse 9, as I mentioned earlier, is going to tell us that, that every one of us, every believer, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, every believer has the ability to live the life that God has called us to. I know we all make excuses, all of us, but God has given us the ability to do that. 
You know, blessed we are to have his word. Some nations have, don't even have it. Some nations right now, through Wycliffe Bible translators, are just getting the word of God in their language. Today, today, we have a choice of how many. Paperback, leather, internet, digital, it doesn't matter. And he's given us his spirit. That being said, I think it's important to say this as well. And I want everybody to listen. If you do not, as I mentioned earlier, if you do not love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and honestly, if you really don't have a desire to do that, and it's obviously evident in your life, evidence reveals a lot, doesn't it? That's why we call it evidence. If your life shows a love for the world over a love and a passion for God, then I will tell you straight up, you do not have the Holy Spirit. And you will not be able to fulfill what God has called you to do. Does that mean that Darren's saying you better be perfect? No, because I am imperfect as well. But if your life is a picture of worldliness, if you love to follow the world, if you're one here and one here, if you really don't have the passion for God as number one in your life, you'll fail. We do. We fall short. But that's what you're striving for. But if you find your striving is more in often some other, something else going on in the world, you have to question yourself. Listen, there's a reason why the Apostle Paul asked the church in, in Corinth. Remember, that's important. He's not asking pagans, as you would say the goats. He's asking the church, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. 1 Corinthians 13.5. People who profess to be Christians, the church in Corinth. He says, you better examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. He says, don't you know that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, he says, you fail the test. Why would Paul have the gall to even say such a thing to a group of professing Christians? Because of how they live their lives. You don't believe me? Go back and read it. You want to read how much of a mess Corinth was, but the church in Corinth because they were trying to bring all the worldliness into the church. And I don't think I would be a good pastor if I didn't say those things. You ask every pastor in this town, do you have any non-believers in your church? Oh, I'll guarantee you. Well, yeah, but these people have been coming here for years. That doesn't matter. There are people who are religious, people who may know certain doctrines. They find it a good place to be, nice people, but they have no relationship with Jesus Christ. And the evidence shows it. Praying a prayer is not evidence. It just means you prayed a prayer. I prayed a prayer when I was 12 years old. I was not saved. And trust me, my life proved it a hundred times over. And it happens with, with many, many people. But through God's Spirit, for those who are born again, we can live this life. And he will continue on in chapter 8 and discuss this for a little while. So I'm, not that I usually don't take my time, because I do anyway, but we'll be cruising along here. There's a lot, of, a lot of verses here in chapter 8, and he'll talk about the Spirit of God as he's, much as he's talked about so much of our, the law and sin, now it's here's how we overcome.
This is the life we live and how we can live it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you that you didn't just stop in chapter 7 because it, we'd have been kind of bummed out. We'd have been left in our sin. We'd have been left in saying, I, I just failed, I screwed up. What am I going to do? But Lord, you didn't and you, you've told us, you've, you caused us to see that Jesus Christ came and he paid the penalty for our sin, which the law could never do. Couldn't save us, couldn't sanctify us, couldn't pay the penalty. It had a job and it did it perfectly. But from that point on, you stepped in. And Lord, we are forever, forever grateful for what you have done. And that Jesus came and he took our penalty for sin upon himself. And not only, if that wasn't amazing in itself, he gave us his righteousness. Thank you, Lord, that positionally, before you, we are proclaimed righteous. Practically, we are sinners. But Lord, I pray that as we've talked about today, knowing we have your word, knowing we have your Holy Spirit, I pray, Lord, that we would strive to be faithful men and women of God, making sure that our passion in life isn't something else. It isn't cars, it isn't food, it isn't money, it isn't politics. It's Christ. That doesn't mean we can't have an interest, Lord, but if that's more important, then Lord, help us to examine ourselves, to really challenge us, Lord, where we're at if we profess to know Jesus. And Lord, give us guidance as we continue on in this book and see how we are empowered to live our lives. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.